welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. This is one of your hosts, Stefan Hostetter, in studio with Dave Hostetter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe we have uh, Lauren on the line. Lauren, are you there? Mm-hmm, sure am. Amazing. Warren Latour. Yes. And uh, and we will be having uh, both uh, both Saren and uh, our guest Tim will be coming in. Jumping the sustainable in at economist Tim Nash. Yes, we'll be coming in later in the show. Uh, but uh, we're going to jump right into news. So let's start off with uh, what's going on in Hawaii. Indigenous Hawaiian land and water protectors have been blockading access for around two weeks now to the sacred site of Mauna Kea, which plays a central role in Hawaiian cosmology. The protectors are attempting to finally and definitively put an end to the planned construction of a 30-meter-tall telescope on a pristine summit of the Sacred Mountain, which they've been fighting for the past decade. Due to numerous factors stemming from the colonial aggression the U.S. government has used against the native population since its betrayal and annexation of of Hawaii's monarchy in the the 1890s, 13 telescopes have uh, already been built on Mauna Kea starting in 1964, when the University of Hawaii violated the terms of lease and built additional observatories with no legal consequence. Those previous observatories have already uh, caused much damage to the mountain, but this new one is planned for a currently pristine area, and and protesters are calling it the one too big and the one too many. The company behind the telescope, with investment from Canada, China, India, Japan, and California, has already been looking at a site in Spain as an alternative, and has said that it would consider relocating there but they are still pushing the project in Hawaii. This in spite of the spiritual importance of the mountain and a growing global indigenous solidarity movement reminiscent of Standing Rock. The telescope is to be built over a water aquifer, which is a major source of water for the Big Island. Over 30 people were arrested on the 15th of July, most of them elders. Many of them were apprehended by native police, which critics say were deployed specifically to create the spectacle of relatives arresting each other and to sow discord in the community. For his part, Hawaii Governor David Ige has handled the situation terribly, at one point claiming that there was drug abuse at the protest camp without citing any evidence. He also implied that the strictly disciplined and peaceful protectors were a danger to themselves and the community when he declared of an emergency proclamation that he signed, quote, We do believe that this emergency proclamation gives law enforcement the additional tools that they need to continue to work to keep the people safe. Listeners will remember that this is the exact same line that Canadian government officials and police were taking against the Unistotan land and water protectors in northern BC when they argued that increased police aggression was an effort to keep people safe. One indigenous Hawaiian activist said, quote, We are absolutely committed to peace, peaceful protest, nonviolent action. We are not wavering from that. Our enemy is this illegal occupying state that continues to deny the rights of Kanaka, who continue to treat us as non-existent, dead people. As indigenous organizer Pua Case told Amy Goodman of Democracy Now!, quote, If we don't stand for the most sacred, what will we stand for? And if not now, when will we stand? There are native people everywhere around the world standing for their mountaintops, for their waters, for their land bases, their oceans, and their lifeways. We are no different. Our mountain is a symbol of unity for the entire world. It is a symbol of how to stand when you must protect the most sacred, protect your world that you live in, protect your resources and your source and your lifeways. And why people can't understand that, I can't fathom it. Yeah, so there's this actually in in a somewhat um, 
specific way ties into sort of the the second uh, two segments of the show, uh, specifically around um, where we where it seems as if so many of uh, the people who are sort of locked in today's society or the society that we live in today just have absolutely a complete inability to see another way of life. Like it, it comes down to this sort of it seems it seems as if there's almost you know it's, it's a there's a metaphor about how you know the fish can see all the things but it can't see the water it swims in, um, and and to me that we you know we've created this society that cannot understand the sacred unless it's human created, you know it, we how much how much how much of a fanfare was made about the you know about the loss of uh, of Notre Dame, uh, the church. Um, as if as if that was a huge loss, and yet and yet there's absolutely not even a second thought, it seems, to destroying these these sacred places. And how much older are they too? Well, exactly, you know, and and and, and so it feels like, and, and even once we've you know this this collective culture that we've created, uh, you know, with individualism and capitalism is, is one thing that's that is, is the only thing that's more primary. The only thing that's primary is is the wants of capital, and and it seems as if we've completely lost the ability to consider something could exist outside side of that and the protection of the of the european heritage of culture right over the cultures that the european heritage has attempted to stamp out in place of its own yes yeah um and and i think there's, there's a bit here also between about science versus you know the idea of science in in, in its in its weird area and, and how you're seeing a bunch of scientists respond you know, in support and and also obviously pushing for this and i think there's a thing there but uh, lauren i want to go to you first yeah i mean you kind of touched on 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 a point there but like we, like we wouldn't bulldoze over the Vatican to create a dark sky preserve, though I don't actually think it's a bad idea. And, like, this is this is no different. It's about so much more than just one mountain and one sacred site. It's, it's about respect for the original peoples of, of any given land and what they hold sacred. It's This is another example, and I feel like listeners are going to be sick and tired of me saying it, but, like, of environmental racism. Mm. Environmental racism doesn't always look like water that's been polluted or, or air that you can't breathe anymore. It's about who has sort of sovereignty over over the land they live in but um obviously like i'm i'm very much in support of the construction of a new telescope in general i think that's great i think researching and better understanding our place in the universe is is integral to our well-being as inhabitants of this planet and like frankly like super cool that we're gonna be able to gaze farther into the stars but as i've been sort of reflecting this has been sort of (laughs) occupying my newsfeed in tandem with a whole bunch of really lovely stories about the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Um, and as I've been sort of reflecting on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing this week, um, one of the things that m- that sort of makes that whole thing, the moon landing, I mean, so beautiful and such a triumph is that it acted to unite our species in like an otherwise really, really tumultuous time. And I don't think, and, and I think a lot of people in the scientific community don't think that furthering research and understanding of the cosmos on the backs of indigenous peoples by knowingly sacrificing their sacred spaces is the best we can do as a species. Like, find a different mountain. That one in Spain sounds like a great idea. Um, I, I don't know. That's yeah. just sort of where I'm at. Like, it's, it, it, it doesn't seem worth it, and it doesn't seem, well, we know it's not worth it. Well, and, yeah. and yeah, like, this is another situation where we don't need to be pitting science against against the well-being of these indigenous peoples and all that they hold sacred when so much has been taken from them already. Yeah, it, it, it feels as if it was interesting about this in a little bit is, is the is the sort of if you're in this if, when the, for the people trying to make this sort of pitting this narrative uh, of, of trying to push this sort of narrative that this is a pitting between the two, which, again, many, many scientists have come out and been like, no, we can do this other ways. Um, the, the, part of it, I think, comes down to this idea that like 
science still gets to, this idea around how science somehow is 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 in scientific learning is is sacred you know like in that like there's a level of which there, there's a level which is like oh no but the quest for knowledge is always good mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and i think that there's that i think that that kind of ethos sort of forgets how much knowledge we're we're intentionally stamping out with this new paradigm right it's it's as if this particular paradigm of every mountaintop should have you know should have a uh, should have a you know big telescope so we can so we learn more about the sort of space theoretically is 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 somehow ignores all of the learning and the knowledge that exists on the people who find those particular spaces sacred as they are now, right? It 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 almost it, it fundamentally it ignores in in silences all of the all of the learning that 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 is that is truly already there. Uh, but Sarah, you want to jump in? I I just I just needed to play devil's advocate for a minute on a technicality <clears throat> regarding um, so how often scientists get blamed for things that are not actually their fault. Um, science scientists uh, go where people fund stuff. Um, and so I just want to be clear that, you know, when people be just because there is such a demonization of sort of the arrogant, uh, you know, elitists and 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 climate change being a part of what's used to deny climate change, that I think it's important to delineate that it's not a researcher in a it's not an in an alchemy lab in a tower th- coming up with mad scientific experiments. Someone decided that this is what should be funded. And so this is what they're doing as opposed to something else that was decided to not be funded. And it's not just a bunch of scientists sitting around deciding what to do with their time. I just want I think I think it's important to be clear about that because of how much that confusion gets used to deny climate change. Yeah, I think um, the, one of the problems is that, in fact, possibly the main problem is that we don't consider indigenous knowledge to be knowledge. Right. We don't think of it as a category of, of knowing or learning or, or, or something that can, that can help our society. Yeah. And I, and I think, and I think that, that, that coming out of the sort of the, the westernized doctrine, um, allows for consistent sort of refusal. And I, it, com- it comes back a little bit to this, this crisis of imagination that was, that you covered, uh, previously, um, on, you know, with your interview at Stephen Sharper, um, about how many, about how so many cultures worldwide can imagine a world the way this is not right. Like in the, even in the, in the stuff that you just read, you know, it highlighted the, 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 that indigenous populations across the world are all seeing themselves as part of one fight for a world that this mountain is sacred for a world where standing rock is sacred for a world in which you know your 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 homelands are sacred and 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 so and and that is a that is a thing that we need to see and understand when when we get, get when we come on to the later part of the show when we start talking about sort of this uh, these 41 points why we can never fix the world it it come it, those two things are i think inextricably linked that 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 we have a whole set of people who are able to see a world different place a, a different way sort of being completely baffled at our current society's inability to see these things this way and then a set of people who are so ingrained in that sort of thinking who are constantly reiterating that it's impossible to live another way mm-hmm. while people are literally living another way being like look let us keep doing this and we keep saying no mm-hmm. you know that 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 to me is, is you show people the structures that are already in place and how dependent you are and paint every, every alternative as uh, silly and magical and yeah exactly um, but let's uh, let's we, we, we are running we sort of over so let's go to, uh, to Newfoundland oil so oil production from the Hibernia platform off the coast of Newfoundland near St. John's has been suspended since the 18th after a spill of 12,000 liters from a storage cell possibly resulting from faulty sensors 
Hibernia, whose largest partner is ExxonMobil, originally reported a sheen of 900 meters to 20 meters and continued production. Two slicks were later found on satellite imagery to be 1.7 by 3.3 square kilometers and 6.6 by 3.8 square kilometers. Professor Bill Montevecchi of Newfoundland's Memorial University railed on the CBC about how absurd it is to accept spill figures uh, as reported by industry, setting a spill from 2013 that Hibernia first reported as 10 liters when in fact it was 6,000. In this case, CBC reported, quote, the amount spilled is an estimate based on surveillance flights with an independent regulatory observer looking down from above. But Montevecchi claims that we have no independent assessments of the spill. He also worries about leeches storm petrel seabirds who are attracted to the bright lights of oil platforms and whose population has been cut in half over the past 30 years. Three oil cover birds have so far been uh, discovered. New Newfoundland Natural Resources Minister Siobhan Cody said that the spill was unacceptable, while Finance Minister Tom Osborne said, quote, it is important to note that this is deferred revenue, not lost revenue, as this oil will be produced once operations resume. Uh, as our as our as our still only East Coast correspondent, Lauren, I go to you first. <laughs> Displaced East Coast correspondent. Yes. Um, yeah, I feel like this is one of those things where it's it's, it's twelve thousand liters. I'm sure listeners are, are tuning in and being like, "Well, twelve thousand liters—that really isn't that much." And and it's not, but it's it's. I feel like we owe we it we need to bring it up because it's an example of this of the kind of spills that happen all of the time in this country and are never completely cleaned up. Um, I was reading into this and, and, and a statement from the company said that like, oh yes, some of this has been mechanically recovered, some has also evaporated and some has just dispersed into the water column. Like it's, there's spills that happen all the time and they're small, they're not always big and massive, but but they're never completely cleaned up. And and again, when I was, when I was reading over this, there's like a hyperlink to another story where 320,000 liters of oil and, and produced water, whatever that like alludes to, leaked in Alberta this week. And again, it's not making headlines. It's not making news because these things are commonplace. Um, and it's just like death by a thousand cuts with, when it comes to oil spills and, and the environment. So Yeah, yeah. And th- th- that that is, um, if you ever want to have a weird experience, uh, just go onto the Wikipedia list of list of oil spills. And then just like keep scrolling down for a while, <laughs> and obviously that's just whatever people decided to add here, and so the and so it's certainly it's it's one hundred percent not uh, close to all of them. Um, in fact, it's the only ones that were big enough to make Wikipedia <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and to have citations. And 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 I think I think you're right. I think this this absolute constant over like over and over and over again of these of these little spills. Um, you know, like when you go back to look at some of these places that are sort of that have not been cleaned up or have not been, um, you know, when you talk about the, especially in, in Alberta with the number of, of, of wells that are, are just being left alone and just, and who knows how, how much is leaking. It's like to go back to that little point that was made about like, should we listen to the, to the, to the people who are making the spill about how big the spill was, you know, like, mm-hmm. no, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> and it is consistently proven there. How many other studies have we seen about, about things where, you know, the oil sands consistently underestimate how much methane they're creating uh, or, or, or farms underestimate how much, how much emissions are coming out of their farms. Like, and it only becomes clear that they're lying when you actually start seeing these, uh, start seeing these, these, um, you know, these run drones or things like that. Uh, but Sarah Benjamin. Sorry, no, I just wanted to uh, just to go back because it's bothering me what something uh, Lauren said. I know why she said it, but I would like to politely disagree. I think 12,000 liters is a lot of oil. Uh, my personal <laughs> threshold for a problematic, like, 
like emergency amount of oil is about a bathtub's worth. <laughs> Anything more than that, and you've you've got a serious problem, in my opinion. Yes, I, I was curious. I was actually curious to find out how much twelve thousand uh, liters of oil was, um, and then I searched how many liters of oil was in an Olympic swimming pool, uh, which is two point five million liters. Um, so uh, it is it is a it is about a lane of a swimming pool of, of oil, um, uh, of, of Olympic size swimming pool, which is a big swimming pool. Mm -hmm. You get a slick that covers a very large area of the water because it's floating on top. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It has a lot of it, there's a lot of these different things. But 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 Lauren, you sort of you know you were at the East Coast for for four or five years. Um, uh, uh, like, how common were these sort of little stories? Like, how often were you getting like these sort of like, oh yeah, this you know this this spilled again, this spilled again, and like, does it just become? I feel like it becomes sort of a part of your existence. Yeah, like I feel like it's this is totally anecdotal. Like it's not like I was like keeping keeping track and keeping a tally of all the little spills. But it yeah, like I mean it feels like especially like not even just as people on the East Coast, but but Canadians in general, whether you're living on the East Coast or in southwestern Ontario where so many pipelines traverse through the land or, or Alberta, but yeah, you, you hear about spills every it feels like every few weeks. Maybe if you were to actually keep count, maybe it'd be something like a couple months, but but no, I feel like these are these are near constant, and um, and and yeah, we ignore them. And and I mean, increasingly, as as companies that are involved in the oil industry um, close up shop or go bankrupt or for whatever reason cease operations, we know that they're going to be leaving their infrastructure sitting there to rot and eventually leak further. So, uh, like, who's going to be responsible for cleaning these messes up once these companies go under in a matter of decades? Yeah, and and we covered that uh, recently, a couple weeks, a couple years, a couple months ago. Sorry, uh, when the Alberta, the Alberta had sort of moved before they sort of had Kenny had moved to try to sort of trace people's import, trace these larger oil companies' responsibilities through the sale of the of their wells, because because what large oil companies do is they as 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 these wells sort of uh, become less active. They sell them to smaller subsidiaries, who then sell, sell them smaller subsidies and smaller subsidies, and then eventually the last one just declares bankruptcy, um, and and no one cleans it up. And so the big oil companies are like, well, look, we we clean up all the ones that we close, but what's actually <laughs> happening is that they're sort of selling it down. And there was a push in Alberta to actually keep those to, to track back up, uh, which I I really should check back in on because something tells me Jason Kenney in his war room against climate activists is not going to pursue that as uh, as doggedly as we might like. Have a feeling you might be right there. So. <laughs> uh, we are coming up uh, for twenty minutes. Uh, so, uh, Lauren, if you have any last thoughts uh, on the segment or or the the world that you see it, uh, the floor is yours. Um, well, yeah, I guess I just think uh, when we were talking about um, Mauna Kea, we we sort of really scratched the surface on a really interesting conversation, looking at. Um, the value we place on indigenous knowledge and how we sort of place it in, in juxtaposition to to Western science. And I feel like that could be a really interesting conversation for us to have um, sometime in the future when it's, a, I don't know, a slow news week or whatever, and we can kind of pick what topics we pontificate on. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I feel like that would be a really, really interesting topic for us to, to dig into at a future time. Um, and then I guess if people are just looking for something to do this weekend, Shark Week starts. And uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're what, there's a... 90% decline in shark population. So wow. watch a fake fun documentary and think about the terror that we wreak on our ocean. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. And if any listener has any good uh, resources about uh, about uh, the exposition the of indigenous knowledge and scientific knowledge, please send them our way because that is a very interesting conversation and I would mm -hmm. like to be as prepared for it as possible. Um, uh, but thank you so much, Lauren, as always. We're coming back uh, with a two-part segment mm -hmm. uh, all about these 41 reasons why we're totally sure 
should not even bother trying to make the world a better place. The feasibility of the green energy transition. Yes, the feasibility of the green energy with uh, with a longtime friend of the show, Tim Nash, and it will be uh, a doozy. We're trying to get, we'll have to go through 41 different points that, that they are made. We'll try to move them quickly enough to, to have a conversation. So, so if last week we were too depressing, uh, this week we're going to say we can do it. Uh, mm. So you're welcome, everyone, <laughs> for the rest of this show. Uh, Saren, what do we listen to? The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. All right. Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or perhaps on the podcast, which we found on greenmajority.ca. I am one of your hosts, Stephen Hostetter, in studio with Dave Hostetter, Tim Nash, a sustainable economist, and Saren Kaster. Uh, we will be covering uh, 41 reasons why we shouldn't try and we're screwed. Uh, but uh, spoiler, we think we should try. Uh, so uh, we're going to jump right in because there's a lot of points to get through. Yes. Uh, so a few weeks a few weeks ago, one of our beloved detractors on the Facebook sought to skewer us with an article called Inconvenient Energy Realities by a man named Mark P. Mills of the Manhattan Institute, published on the first of the month. It is billed as presenting the math behind an article of, by the same author that claimed to prove how the green energy transition being called for by many activists and politicians worldwide was an exercise in magical thinking. He writes, quote, the physics and economics of energy combined with scale realities make it clear that there is no possibility of anything resembling a radically new energy economy in the foreseeable future. And I now begin with his points. Number one, hydrocarbons supply over 80% of world energy. If all that were in the form of oil, the barrels would line up to Washington, D.C., to Los Angeles, and that entire line would grow by the height of Washington Monument every week. Yeah, so this is a pretty simple one. Uh, he is illustrating the scale of the problem. Uh, yes, there is a large problem. Um, and, and oh, I didn't know we were playing Call Out the Logical Fallacy. Oh, this is going to be so much fun. <laughs> yeah, that's the game for today. Yeah, uh, yeah. so yes, there's a large problem, and we recognize that. And people will need to be hired to do this. It's a job creator, everyone. The job creator. In code, we call this defining your variables. That was a piece of information. Yes. The, the small two percentage point decline in the hydrocarbon share of world energy use entailed over $2 trillion in cumulative global spending on alternatives over that period. Solar and wind today supply less than 2% of the global energy. So this one is a bit of an econ economics thing, which I find funny in a couple ways. Um, the, the first is that $2 trillion... Uh, and that's all spending to actually to begin to build up this industry. So it, it, everyone knows that industries require more money at the beginning, and it's two trillion dollars. Uh, the uh, Forbes has reported in 2018 uh, that the amount of fossil fuel subsidies that are currently still going uh, is, uh, is is five trillion dollars a year. That means fossil fuel subsidies currently receive $5 trillion a year, and yet the argument that it costs $2 trillion to build an industry to get to 2% is somehow seen as a, as a rejection. But, but Tim, you're, you're the Yeah, best. I mean, so this is going to be, uh, uh, you know, attacking it from two sides. Uh, the first is understanding that 
Um, certainly things are going to be more expensive when you start them. So like I'm just looking at a, uh, some data here from the International Energy Agency. And what's what something that I track are these renewable energy auctions. So what's happening now is a lot of governments are putting out these auctions. Companies bid to see who can do it at the cheapest. Uh, uh, levels. Just to give you an idea, so in 2012, the solar PV price was $268 per megawatt hour. And the most recent auction is actually the project is going to start in 2022. So this is an area where we kind of mm. can look into the future just a few years. And that's going to be $37 per right. megawatt hour. So from 268 down to 37 <clears throat> often what we talk about in economics is the need to these what we call nascent industries and the need to support them, understanding that prices are going to decline. So for him to use that $2 trillion argument is obviously a logical fallacy here because really it's understanding that's as expensive as it's ever going to be and, and the costs are decreasing dramatically. And then the other side of it is understanding that um, uh, uh, the global demand. And, you know, I think a big part of this, again, is pointing out the scale of the problem. And it's like, well, maybe, you know, this whole thing would be a lot easier easier looking at these percentages if we just simply used less energy, which I know we're going to get to efficiency yes. in a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and this is a question. Right. So super, I'll be, I know we have a lot super fast. So uh, argument from ignorance, because I can't see how something would happen, it can't happen. That's the actual logical fallacy at play there. And it's presuming also, the, to add on to what Tim was saying, is that this that if that were true, it would be because oil industry has literally every possible advantage. And yeah. the alternative has all of the disadvantages. So that's two things to consider on that point. Yeah. Also, there's five trillion dollars of, of going to fossil fuels. But anyways, uh, point three, we'll jump through quickly. When the world's four billion poor people increase energy use to just one third of Europe's per capita level, global demand rises by an amount equal to twice America's total consumption. Yeah, that's why we need them to have access to leapfrogging, not leapfrogging technology. Yeah. That is uh, what is in every sort of UN argument uh, and is a big part of the support. Uh, four, five, and six, we've grouped together. Dave. A 100 times growth in the number of electric vehicles to 400 million on the roads by 2040 would displace 5% of global oil demand. Renewable energy would have to expand 90-fold to replace global hydrocarbons in two decades. It took half a century for global petroleum to expand only 10-fold. Replacing U.S. hydrocarbon-based electric generation over the next 30 years would require a construction program building out the grid at a rate 14-fold greater than any time in history. Yeah. So this is this this isn't the fishy conversation, but this is the sort of the the hundredfold argument. It's it's a very it's, it's but Tim, you you've done this. Yeah. I mean, so okay. So when I think look at these charts, I think of the like sort of the bendy graphs, right? And so we talked about the price of solar bending downwards and how much cheaper that's getting. The other piece is the flip side to that is the bendy up curve, which is uh, looking at growth in uh, these sectors. And what's really cool about it is when you we understand that there are these compounded annual growth rates. Right. What it means. So, for example, this idea that, you know, 400 million cars on the road by 2040 at 100 times growth rate. Well, again, according to the International Energy Agency, looking at the growth in electric cars, it's in the ballpark of 50 percent per year. Now, I don't know if that's going to keep growing at that rate, but even let's say it's like 33 percent. So that means it's going to double roughly every three years, you know, by this argument. OK, yeah, 2040. Right. F only 400 million cars. We're only displacing 5% of global oil demand. Well, in 2043, 
<laughs> right? We're looking at 800 million cars, and we're looking at 10% of global oil demand. And then 2046, right? So when, when we look at this idea of compounding growth rates and the acceleration of growth within these sectors, um, it's really easy to point out how hard it is. But again, once you understand that if, if we can have time on our side, and I think this is the big, yeah. big question here is how much time do we have? And obviously, they're trying to delay everything. But if we can take a more patient approach, well, then, you know, by having these compounded growth rates, that means that inevitably we're going to double every few years, every three, maybe even 10 years. But with enough time, we're looking at complete disruption of the energy sector. Yeah. He's also trying to make an, the, the article was stated as saying this is an argument against why we can't have systemic change. And that's actually the uh, he's making the argument for it be, by because all of this analysis so far has been, hey, if we only change one variable and leave everything else the same, there's a problem. Congratulations. You're making an excellent argument for why systems change is the only option. Yeah, we'll get, and that will keep becoming up. That keeps coming up. So we'll keep going. There. <laughs> Number seven: eliminating hydrocarbons to make U.S. electricity impossible soon, infeasible for decades, would leave untouched seventy percent of U.S. hydrocarbons use. America uses sixteen percent of world energy. Yeah, I love this. Uh, the weird brackets that just decide impossible soon, infeasible for decades. That's a great scientific analysis. Thank you. Um, yeah, and it's also you know inherent in this is this idea that okay, we're going to go to zero. And they're mm. like, it's impossible for us to go to zero. And I think what a lot of us understand is that we're, you know, at least I'll speak from my perspective, that I'm not saying that we need to shut down the oil industry right away and never produce one more barrel. What I'm trying to argue is that they can't keep growing at an exponential rate. Because right now, if we look at, you know, the growth of oil and look at a lot of these sectors within the economy, they're, again, looking to double, even if they're just growing, you know, 5% a year, which is like a decent growth rate right now. But you're still looking at a doubling every 15 to 17 years. That's the unsustainable part. So I'm, we're not saying we have to get to zero right away, which frankly would be the big challenge. Instead, you know, my point is at least let's stop growing these industries. Let's start moving the needle in the other way and, you know, maybe talking about a sunset, these sunset industries. But again, it's this whole thing. Well, you know, if we can't, if we can't do go all the way right away, we shouldn't even bother trying. Yeah, and I think the the next three gets us into the efficiency thing, which I really want to get to. So yeah. there's eight, nine, and ten. Efficiency increases energy demand by making products and services cheaper. Since 1990, global energy efficiency improved 33 percent. The, the economy grew 80 percent, and global energy use is up 40 percent. Efficiency uh, since 1995, aviation fuel uh, use passenger miles is down 70 percent. Uh, air traffic rose more than tenfold, and global aviation fuel use rose over 50%. Since 1995, energy use per byte is down about 10,000-fold, but global data traffic rose about a million-fold. Global electricity use used for computing soared. Yeah. So this is this is this is this idea that all efficiency increases demand, uh, and and it is, it, like oh, anyways. 
I'll link yeah. I'm, leaving, I'm leaving this with you. There's sure. so much. So this is a fascinating area because energy efficiency to me is the no-brainer. This is where we see the highest return on investment financially is by reducing consumption. Um, that said, there is this thing that we call the rebound effect. That as things get cheaper, right, as we improve efficiency, well, generally speaking, what happens is costs decrease. And when costs decrease, what happens to demand? It goes up. So often what ends up happening is that as we become more efficient, we'll actually end up using more of the thing that has become more efficient. So, you know, there, there are a couple uh, uh, economic plays here at work. Uh, one thing is this is why it's so important for us to have the true cost accounting, right? And through things like a carbon tax, where if we actually reflect the true cost of those carbon emissions in the prices of the things that we're using, as uh, we use less of it or as they become more efficient, Right. The real cost goes down. But that social cost or that sort of, you know, now internalized cost is actually the same, which means that the price hasn't changed, which means that people are now just simply using less of it. So this is an area where, you know, traditional economics uh, is really kind of missing the boat because they ignore a lot of those externalized costs. And when we actually internalize those costs through pricing mechanisms like cap and trade, carbon tax, you know, take your pick, that, that now we're we're in a situation where we actually have the proper economics at play, where we will have that uh, uh, expected reality where uh, we're going to use less of those things. Yeah. This is an argument for a price on carbon. That's right. Just directly. That is what this is. That's um, right. 11. Since 1995, a total world energy use rose by 50%, an amount equal to adding two entire United States worth of demand. Yeah, this is the same argument as number three. As people are getting wealthier, or as, as organizations are getting wealthier, our places are getting wealthier, they will need more energy, so we must support them to use green energy and green technology. That is, And I see this so much right now, you know, point the finger at China and India, yeah. that it's their problem, they're the problem, we're not the problem, they're the problem. And, you know, it's just so funny, because it's like, okay, they're the problem, what's the logical solution? Let's help them leapfrog. But then we try to, like, give money to countries to build out green infrastructure. And it's like, you're giving our money to you, you Canada first. And we should be looking after ourselves first. So, again, I don't know what that logical fallacy is called. But, you know, it's one of those sort of speaking out of both sides in your mouth. Yeah. And, and it gets it's, to it's a logical fallacy called racism. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. Sure. Yeah. It, it gets to some more China bashing later on. But uh, now let's move to uh, 12, 13, and 14. For security and reliability, an average of two months of national demand for hydrocarbons are in storage at any time. Today, barely two hours of national electricity demand can be stored in all utility-scale batteries, plus all batteries in one million electric cars in America. Batteries produced annually by the Tesla Gigafactory can store three minutes' worth of annual U.S. electricity demand. Uh, to make enough batteries to store today's worth of U.S. electricity demand would require 1,000 years of production by the Gigafactory. So this, to me, is just scaling. Right. Yeah, this is we a, need more batteries. Yeah, this is a criticism of the new of the y young industry that is battery technology. And yes, we need to invest it. A great way to fund money, put money into investing it, will be to I don't know, put a price on carbon and maybe invest that money in building better batteries. This is a thought. Yeah. Can I just republish this entire article under the title "A Case for Massive Government Regulation"? <laughs> <laughs> so there, there are some interesting dynamics when it comes to energy storage. Uh, the biggest financial incentive 
expensive to have more storage. And you know, we tend to focus just on batteries, but there are some really cool new energy storage technologies coming out that are not dependent on you know lithium or any of these other materials. Uh, uh, you know, there's there's a project under Lake Ontario with yeah. these giant balloons. You know, I'm seeing these cool things with like cranes moving cement blocks, right, and then using the gravity to be able to to uh, uh, um, uh, to release that energy. But again, um, you know, so obviously we need it. The best government incentive or policy for that is uh, uh, time of use pricing. Hmm. The, the bigger gap we have between high demand pricing and low demand pricing makes investments that much more attractive. And then just to talk about lithium ion batteries just for a moment, which I don't think are the be all end all solution, but to give you a sense of the scale of the price again from the International Energy Agency in 1995, uh, um, it was 3,185 US dollars per kilowatt hours, whereas in 2016, it was 200 and, uh, or sorry, $248. So again, the price of storing one kilowatt hour of electricity went from almost $3,200 down to about $250. Yeah. So it's only going to get cheaper. Right. And and that really, yeah, I agree with the author here. We need more energy storage. Yeah. And, and they come back a little bit later on to uh, criticizing how some battery technology. And I at that point, I want to get back into all the other ways to store energy because it's fascinating. Yeah, it's so cool. It's so cool. Uh, 15 and 16. Every $1 billion in aircraft produced leads to $5 billion in aviation fuel consumed over two decades to operate them. Global spending on new jets is more than $50 billion a year and rising. Every $1 billion spent on data centers leads to $7 billion in electricity demand consumed over two decades. Global spending on data centers is more than $100 billion a year and rising. Yeah, so these things should be more expensive. Uh, you, You should fly less and don't own Bitcoin. These are two things uh, that you should do. Um, yeah. Now you fly when you have to, and no one needs to own Bitcoin. That is the fact. I will, I will, I will go on record. In case you're wondering why I'm harping on Bitcoin, it, Bitcoin uses so much electricity that it uses, I think, as much electricity as we, I think, added or entire solar capacity. It is cr- incredible how much energy Bitcoin requires. And it's the Bitcoin. This guy's mining. trying to prevent someone from wanting to move to a new neighborhood by explaining to them how terrible the neighborhood they already live in is. (laughs) And it's also understanding these two, these are two sectors that we know contribute a lot to climate change and we need to see action on. Uh, The aviation, and they are doing some cool things, looking at biofuels. I saw a new design for a more efficient plane, um, but I think ultimately it is going to be true pricing, true cost pricing there. And then when it comes to the tech firms, they're actually moving, they're some of the ones moving fastest when it comes to renewable energy procurement. Realize that because they use so much electricity for these data centers, they can actually build renewable energy facilities near the data center and produce their own electricity cheaper than they're getting it from the grid, right? So it's kind of interesting. He's pointing out these are two sectors that are sort of ripe for uh, disruption that as an investor, I want to know which companies are kind of leading the charge on this because they're going to be the ones that are more profitable. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Okay, so 17, 18, and 19. Over a 30-year period, $1 million worth of utility-scale solar or wind produces 40 million and 55 million kilowatt hours, respectively. $1 million worth of shale well produces uh, enough natural gas to generate 30 million kilowatt hours over 30 years. It costs the same to build one shale well or or two wind turbines. The latter combined produces 0.7 barrels of oil equivalent energy per hour. The shale rig averages 10 barrels of oil per hour. Uh, it costs less than 50 cents to store a barrel of oil or its equivalent in natural gas, but it costs $200 to store the equivalent of energy of a b- barrel of oil in batteries. 
There's a like there's a, like there's like three more segments of him bashing on batteries. So I kind of feel like I'll get to there. We'll get to that <laughs> later on. Um, we are coming up to a music break, so we're gonna we're gonna do one more and then we'll go to the music break. Um, but yeah, basically this is the, all three of those points. Which again, I think we'll probably post this whole response maybe on on the, so people can actually read these one by one as they go through them uh, on the, on the show post. But um, you know, basically this is just comparing a fully fledged organ uh, fully fledged industry with something that's been around yeah. for five years. Cars are more expensive than horses. Yes. Don't you know? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> like, how, how could you, you know, one car is like 85 horses. How yeah. could we ever, why would anyone own a, a car? You get 85 horses. Uh, number 20, and then we'll go to break. So cost models for wind and solar assume respectively 41% and 29% capacity factors. Uh, real world data reveal as much as 10% points less for both. That translates into $3 million less energy produced than assumed over a 20-year life of a 2 million watt, $3 million wind turbine. Yeah, so I can't really speak to the, uh, the Sorry, engineering. Sorry, 2 megawatt. I can't really speak to the engineering point of this, yeah. um, uh, unless you can. Uh, I mean, so not so much the engineering. Again, you know, I'm not an electrical engineer. Uh, that said, what I'm reading from electrical engineers is that because the price of renewable energy is falling so fast, we're in a situation where it might actually be easier, and I'm talking, you know, 10, maybe 20 years down the road, for us just to have, like, an absurd amount, like, to overproduce renewable electricity to be able to account for, for this... Uh, uh, you know, how the, the kind of unreliability that it might end up being cheaper just to produce like three times the amount of solar or four times the amount of wind, right, just to be able to account for that. And then really what this speaks to is the need for more batteries and better batteries. Yeah. And then also transmission lines like building a smart grid and, you know, understanding that that uh, uh, we're, we're going to need to be able to transmit electricity a little more efficiently than we are right now. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I would say the, the last bit about this for me is that 10 percent of, of less efficiency on these things compared to, I don't know, the 10 the 10 percent of ignoring how much extra methane is being produced by the oil sands that they're not talking about. You know, I, I just don't think this is the same devastating point that he thinks it is. Like, I think that's a you know, OK, 10 percent. OK, build 10 percent more wind chargers. OK, that's not objectively that much more um but uh but saren we're gonna gonna throw to the music break which uh which is a tim pick and i think works pretty well uh for the whole theme we're going for i'm really hoping that i picked the right song it's the right band all right there we go i don't dream big just the right size modesty comes from mom's side you ever heard Wow, that was quite the... That's my bad. <laughs> that was not my song. No, that was not Tim's song. Tim's song was Deadlines, but that was Restless. And uh, we're back here on The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM uh, with uh, Tim Nash in studio. Um, I'm Stefan Hostetter. Dave Hostetter is also in studio. Saren Kaster is chiming in when they do. And we have 20 more reasons why we shouldn't try to fix this broken world. Dave, what do we got? Was it actually the Arkells, though? Was uh, it was, in fact, was yes. Uh, okay. And I'm going to stay quiet unless they do something other than an argument from ignorance, because, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, 21. In order to compensate for episodic wind solar output, U.S. utilities are using oil and gas burning reciproca reciprocating engines, uh, big cruise ship like diesels, three times as many as have been added to the grid since 2000 as, as in the past 50 years prior to that. Yeah, I think what, the, what they're burning here is key. Uh, and it goes back to your sort of idea of, like, zero or much, much better. Yeah. Um, you know, like if this is natural gas and it's used rarely and we plant a, you know, a million trees uh, and it's enough to keep the whole energy system working, 
that's a carbon win. Yeah, and I mean, the whole thing is here where if as we displace more oil, that allows that oil, it's actually going to push the price of oil down, which means that rather than burning the, the heavier diesels, it'll actually be cheaper to, to burn sort of the light crudes when we need it as we're transitioning to this argument um, uh, or to this new scenario. So again, really like that's just like, okay, we need more batteries. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So 22 and then we're going to have to move faster as we keep moving. Wind up. farm capacity factors have, impro- have improved uh, about, at about 0.7% this year. This small gain comes mainly from reducing the number of turbines per acre, leading to 50% increase in average land use to produce a wind kilowatt hour. Yeah, I, I do need more information about this to really talk about it. Um, I, my, my question really here is if wind farm includes offshore, uh, because I've, most of the news I've seen is offshore wind farm is really where people are headed and how much more you're seeing gains. Yeah, that's right. So I've just got here the, the cost in terms of offshore, you know, the auction in 2018 for is uh, $183 uh, per megawatt hour, whereas an auction, probably the most recent one, 2023, is at, uh, uh, sorry, $66 per megawatt hour. So again, you know, prices are going dramatically down specifically for offshore wind. Onshore wind, it has declined from about $80 down to the lowest one I've seen is about $30 in terms of that auction. So it's going down, but not as dramatically as the uh, um, offshore wind is declining in price. Yeah, so uh, 23, 24, and 25. Over 90% of America's electricity and 99% of the power grid used in transportation comes from sources that can easily supply energy to the economy anytime the market demands it. Wind and solar machines produce energy an average of 25 to 30 percent of the time and only when nature permits. Conventional power can operate nearly continuously and available when needed. The shale revolution collapsed the prices of natural gas and coal, the two fuels that produce 70 percent of U.S. electricity. But electric rates haven't gone down, rising instead 20 percent since 2008. Direct and indirect subsidies for solar and wind consumed those savings. Yeah, so the first two are just more explanation as to why batteries are so important and why we should be investing in this technology. And the last one just sort of feels like complaining. I yeah, I mean, so this is a big thing is like energy prices are going up and, you know, a lot, they'll often point to other regions. And I know here in Ontario, it was a huge reason blaming why electricity costs go up. But that's just not the case. You know, really, it's about the infrastructure required. We've got a really aged grid here in Ontario. So it was updating that. Um, and so for me, it's just really, uh, uh, you know, quite, you know, and, and, and if you want to talk about direct and indirect subsidies <laughs> for oil and gas yeah. and solar, like, okay, great. Great. Let's talk about direct and indirect subsidies yeah. for fossil fuels, because I would really love to do that cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, like if you want to get rid of indirect subsidies for renewables, yeah. you will also and also get rid of indirect uh, subsidies for fossil fuels. Every flight you want to take will cost exorbitantly more money. Yeah, I'm I'm into that. Yeah, let's have let's let let's yeah let's have them all on the same plane. Yeah. Quick reminder to folks that if you wipe out all subsidies in certain cases, in certain places, renewable energy is already cheaper. Yes. Uh, 26 is a very quick one. So uh, transforming the energy economy is like putting humanity on the moon permanently. Yeah, uh, it's it's hard. Let's not do it is how uh, my one quote for that. Uh, We now have a string of them from 27 down to 33. So he claims that a common cliche is that energy tech disruption will echo digital tech disruption. But information-producing machines are not energy-producing machines and involve profoundly different physics. The cliche is sillier than comparing apples to bowling balls. If solar power scaled like computer tech, a single postage stamp solar array 
A size solar ray would power the Empire State Building. If batteries scaled like digital tech, a battery the size of a book costing three cents could power a jetliner to Asia. If combustion engines scaled like computers, a car engine uh, would shrink to the size of an ant and produce a thousandfold more horsepower. Uh, actual ant size engines produce 100,000 times more power. Uh, no digital like uh, 10 times gains exist for solar tech. A uh, physics limit for solar cells, the Shockley-Quiser limit, is a max conversion of about 33% of photons into electrons. Commercial cells today are at 26%. No digital like 10 times uh, gains exist for wind tech. Physics limits for wind turbines. The Betts limit is a max capture of 60% of, of, of energy in moving, in moving air. Commercial turbines achieve 45%. No digital like 10 times gains exist for batteries. Maximum theoretical energy in a pound of oil is 1,500 times greater than max theoretical energy in the best pound of battery chemicals. Yeah, so, like, this is yet another, this is harder than scaling computer tech. Well, and he's just, like, where the 10x gains exist is in efficiency technology. Right. Right, so this is the whole idea of, uh, you know, I want to say it's uh, uh, Amory Lovins and this idea of, of, like, really that we can reduce our energy needs while still maintaining our quality of life by about, you know, 95%. Like from 100%, we can use 5% of the energy that we need and still have the quality of life. Things like passive buildings, things like, uh, uh, you know, instead of electric cars, people using bicycles and walking in livable cities and all these different things, just by these very simple behavior change and really our infrastructure changes, so we don't need to be able to produce and store 10 times more energy. I agree with him that, you know, it's the world isn't going to be saved by having, you know, 100 more gigafactories, right? The world is going to be saved by us using the energy that, that we are consuming so much more efficiently and effectively. And that's where those tech-like gains can be uh, achieved. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So going, if 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 you accept the premise that this is equivalent to going to the moon, then not doing it and trying to live in a climate changed world with twenty foot higher sea levels and and fifteen degree average sea height would be doing the same thing without a spaceship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that that comes back to the culture piece that I, that I want to think. I think we'll end with that culture piece because I think we're actually going to get through this whole thing um, because our next we have another from th number question from complaint number thirty four all the way down to. Plate number 39. About 60 pounds of batteries are needed to store the energy equivalent of one pound of hydrocarbons. At least 100 pounds of materials are mined, moved, and processed for every pound of battery fabricated. Storing the energy equivalent of one barrel of oil, which weighs 300 pounds, requires 20,000 pounds of Tesla batteries, $200,000 worth. Carrying the energy equivalent of the aviation fuel used by an aircraft flying to Asia would require $60 million worth of Tesla-type batteries, weighing five times more than that aircraft. It takes the energy equivalent of 100 barrels of oil to fabricate a quantity of batteries that can store the energy equivalent of a single barrel of oil. A battery-centric grid and car would mean a car world means mining gigatons more of the earth to access lithium, copper, nickel, graphite, rare earths, cobalt, etc., and using millions of tons of oil and coal both in mining and to fabricate metals and concrete. Yeah, so um, again, uh, this comes from an understanding that the only way to store energy uh, is using lithium-ion batteries. That's right. you know, or, or or these type of chemical batteries. And as, as as Tim mentioned previously, that's not the only way of doing this. In fact, there are many ways. And some of the interesting, most of the most interesting work is showing how these different storage techniques. So to just briefly explain what goes on in the in the harbor. Might, correct me if I'm wrong in this. The Toronto um, Harbor. The Toronto Harbor. Yeah, sorry. Uh, is that uh, when it's a way to store energy is that they use energy to fill up the this giant 
giant balloon underwater. Um, and then when they want the energy back, they let the balloon get pushed in by the water pressure, which then spins a turbine mm. and then creates uh, and then creates mm. the energy. That's right. And wow. and and this what's interesting about this type of this type of battery in these sort of more mechanical batteries is that they've actually been proven to be usable for longer. You know, these chemical batteries have a kind of a specific amount of time. Whereas yeah. with these mechanical ones, you can actually upkeep, and they don't have all and they don't need any of these things, right? Yeah. And so I think a lot of this question is yes, our utility scale size ba- energy storage cannot be done exclusively with Tesla Powerwalls. Like that can't, that, that is not the way to do this. Um, and we agree with this, with this, this argument on that front. Um, but that, to act as if there's no other option is, is just ignoring other answers to your question. Yeah, and I mean, it's really two things. One is the, you know, where the Tesla Powerwalls do work is in a decentralized energy system. So for a lot of remote communities, for a lot of places where it's like you don't actually need that much electric, uh, uh, electricity, you know, then then those those batteries can serve a really good purpose there. When we are looking at it at grid scale, that's when I think we really need these, these kind of more mechanical solutions. And also, you know, just really innovation that to me, again, what he's doing a great job of presenting the opportunity here in terms of... <laughs> investing in, you know, venture capital, private equity solutions that really uh, Tesla's gone with lithium ion because they knew they could make it the cheapest, that they could dramatically reduce those costs, which they've done. Now, we're in a situation now where there's looking at the scale of this problem. This is a massive economic opportunity. And again, with proper pricing and economic incentives, uh, you know, I think we could encourage a lot more innovation than we're currently seeing. Yeah. And, and right now, as we mentioned previously, you know, we're giving we're still giving the old technology five trillions dollars a year. You yeah. know, like we're, we're literally paying the bad idea still. still. And how hard is it to be? You know, no one was like no one was giving uh, the radio technology business, you know, billions of dollars to, as TVs were taking over. And if they were, they probably slowed down the takeover of TVs like this is like this this is how this all works Sorry, there were uh, there were electric trolleys before uh there was mass roads in ontario and they were ripped up i don't know i can't know the details off my recall but tim's nodding mm-hmm. at me enough that i know i'm not misremembering yeah and this has been a tricky bit you know certainly the car industry was really good at this essentially buying a lot of these technologies uh public transit etc and then just shelving them and just you know putting them away and when i see a lot of these oil companies that are now like going hard and you know into this transition and developing this, these technologies but I'm not really seeing the breakthroughs. I am kind of cynical that, you know, are, do we trust the, the, the companies who have a vested stake in the status quo to develop the technologies that are going to transform their industry? Uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah. Uh, so we only have two more, uh, number 40 and then 41. But this China time. dominates global battery production with 70% uh, grid, 70% coal fueled. Electric vehicles using Chinese batteries will create more carbon dioxide than saved by replacing oil burning engines. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, China uh, is uh, needs to get off coal. Uh, they are working quite hard on it. That is why they're that's why they're the global production of. They're working solar a lot harder and, than we are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and and they're and they're and they have a lot of actually internal incentives given how their cities are being are being covered in smog. There's a lot of actually specific right. internal incentives from that as well, and, and so. And I mean, I see so again so much people just like pointing, oh, China's the problem, right? And it's like, okay, yeah, China's the problem. Canada only accounts for I think it's 1.6 percent of global emissions. Let's help China. Let's fund them. Same thing, Amazon, you know, uh, 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 Brazil, you know, with the Amazon forest. We're looking at that like there's a problem. The world needs to step up with these global problems. 
And if we recognize that this is a huge part of the problem, let's recognize that and let's step up and help them leapfrog and, and develop some of these solutions that are going to benefit the globe as a whole. Yeah, and I think 41 is uh, my favorite, mostly because it sort of indicates just how in bad faith this entire operation was. Number 41. One would no more use helicopters for regular transatlantic travel, doable with elaborately expensive logistics, than employ a nuclear reactor to power a train or photovoltaic systems to power a nation. Yeah, so no one is arguing that we should use a nuclear reactor to power a train, um, and and photovoltaic systems are... You know, yeah, I mean, let's just let's just address the bad faith argument right here, because yeah. this whole thing was done in bad faith, and yes. I think we can acknowledge that. And what I like to point out is keep in mind that the fossil fuel industry is using the same playbook that the tobacco industry used in terms of, of cigarettes causing cancer, which is delay, deny, you know, uh, uh, confuse people. You know, really, they're doing everything they can to tell us why we shouldn't, why we should delay, why it's going to be so hard. Right. And really understanding that that gets us nowhere. We've been having these conversations now for decades, understanding that climate change is a threat, is a problem. They've been winning that delay argument. And so when it comes to all of these, understand that this is just completely in bad faith. And we've spent, you know, the last 40 minutes going through and refuting these things. And, and to me, it's just like, yeah, it's easy to refute them. But the fact that we're even entertaining them, you know, makes me wonder whether we are sort of part of the problem here. <laughs> I'm hearing a lot of people talking about the need for a slow transition. OK, so now we realize that we need to transition, but we need it needs to be a slow one, a very gradual one. And, you know, I remember when Stéphane Dion was running for prime minister and we talked about a green shift back then, that would have been the time to start a slow transition. Yeah. We had time on our side then. Yeah. And I think really the question now is, you know, how much time do we have? And understand that so many of these actors are acting in bad faith, simply trying to delay. And the more we debate them, the more we're delaying, we're not doing that action. So, you know, it puts us in a tough spot because I definitely think it's important to, to refute this stuff and to, you know, give people the arguments. But at the same time, you know, I, I wonder whether we're just playing into their hands. Yeah, uh, we have a we have a, to have to shift an entire culture. And you know what we have is deadlines. Uh, <laughs> we've got some deadlines coming up. Uh, we'll get back with the next week's Green Majority episode. Tune in again. Thank you so much. Have a great green week, everyone. See you all real soon.